2: Hello and welcome to a brand new Arseblog Arscast, right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Look, we're heading into what I think is going to be the best weekend of the Premier League season so far. Simply because, well, you know, we can't lose. Can't lose this weekend. No way. Not even if we tried. There is no football. There is an interlull. Perhaps it has come at just the right time. It allows everybody to take... A step backwards, take stock. We can calm our own nerves as fans. The club can get some players back from injury. They can get some of the new players in. Of course, there was a deadline day signing. Get a few training sessions in. Maybe, maybe do a bit of shooting practice. And The lads will be like, what what is this? And the instruction is, well, look, propel this round thing between those sticks and into the net. They're like... It's incredible. We've never seen this before. What a what an innovation. Get a bit of that done and we're all set for Norwich and everything goes uh, everything goes in the right direction again. Yes, I can hear you ask the question, am I on drugs? The answer of course is I wish. I wish I was. But look, you know, I need to I need to find some sliver of optimism, some suggestion that we can get things back on track. Now, this show is a bit of a bumper show, so we're going to get straight into it. Later on, we're going straight through that transfer window with insight into the roles of Edu, Mikel Arteta, the board, the incoming deals, the outgoing deals, and lots more with David Ornstein from The Athletic, so stay tuned for that. But first... Joining me to talk about the deadline day signing of Japan International, Takahiro Tomiyasu, what kind of a player he is, what he'll bring to the team, and some thoughts on the window overall. I'm delighted to welcome to the show, Phil Costa. Hello, Phil. Hey Andrew. How's it going? It's going all right. Those who don't know um, or who aren't members on Patreon, we've been doing new player signings uh, or podcasts every time we've made a new uh, signing. So we've been doing that all summer. Uh, Because of the timing of this one, we didn't get a chance to do it uh, on Patreon, but we're doing it now. So it's clear, Phil, isn't it, that Arsenal have needed to do something about the right back position for the whole summer. And what happened in the first three games of the season really brought that into sharp focus.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was always kind of lingering in the background. Um, but maybe they thought they could get by with with Chambers and maybe Cedric um, or even I the McLarenals if he was, you know, coming back in from the cold, but then like you said the first three games just went, "Oh, okay, we definitely need to do something now and uh, I know they left it until deadline day, but I'm sure they, you know, after Chelsea um and City were like, "Right, we need to get something done now and I'm sure they kicked things into gear." So, yeah, it, you know, it was very pressing for me personally and I'm sure it was for the club. Um and and yeah, they brought uh, Tomiyasu in, and I'm you know
2: generally quite happy with the with the signing. He fits into the age profile, obviously, and that's something you know that's been spoken about at length. Is the age profile of the players that that we've brought in so far this summer? So he's 22 years of age, maybe not the traditional physique of a right back, and I think there's an element of versatility to his defensive um, capabilities, if you like. He has played at centre half as well. Um, so if, if people were looking for a sort of facsimile of Kieran Tierney, a right-sided Tierney, if you like, he's he's not really that, is he? He he fits more into this idea that the right-back in the system that Mikel Arteta plays tucks in a bit and, and you know, out of possession or in possession, rather, Arsenal have this, this back three shape, even if ostensibly they're not always set up with a back three uh, in the team lineup.
0: No, that's it. I mean it it's quite interesting to see who he's been linked with throughout the summer actually, because uh, he was very heavily linked with Atalanta who play three at the back um, and Spurs. I know they, they play a four now under Nuno, which is quite surprising, but they have Reguilon on the other side. Who's very much in that kind of Tierney mold. Um, who's like sort of up and down flying uh, into the box, coming back. And, you know, I could see the logic behind their interest in Tomiyasu because in a similar fashion to us, he would be kind of the right back uh, center back, you know, forming a kind of back three when they attack and in possession. So, you know, you're, you're bang on, I think in terms of what Mikel Arteta wants to do. Um, And to a lesser extent, we have kind of seen it with Callum Chambers, but I think the idea was to to improve on him. Um, But yeah, like you said, he's kind of a, a strange profile, both physically and, and technically because he's quite tall. Um, mm. You know, there's not many right-backs you see that are six, foot two, um, six feet two inches tall. So um, I think he's coming in kind of very much with that role in mind to kind of be the right-back on paper, but in terms of what we see on the pitch, it will very much be him tucking in and Tierney bombing on.
2: I suppose the question that I have before we talk about some of his strengths and weaknesses is is quite how... I mean, we're looking for somebody, I suppose, to be not necessarily the partner for Ben White, because if you're looking at a back four and Ben White is playing as a a centre half, you're looking at him and Gabriel forming a partnership. But the partnerships are important on both sides. The player outside you is important as the player inside you. So... Are there elements of his profile that seem to complement Ben White? We know that Ben White likes to carry the ball uh, and go forward with it quite a bit. So that leaves a gap. Is his natural tendency or his ability rather to play as a central defender a useful aspect when it comes to, um, you know, slotting him in alongside Ben White?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wrote in the profile piece that he's very much a defender who loves to defend. Um and I think it's important to note that you know with with Tierney, I mean the ideal left center back that we all see in our minds is is Gabriel and I you know you, you spoke about Ben White potentially leaving gaps but but Tierney will do the same. Um but with Gabriel I kind of trust him physically enough to be able to to kind of uh Take take that space as well as his own space. You know he's a tall guy. He's very quick, um, and I kind of trust him mm-hmm. enough to to be able to handle it himself when Tierney comes forward. But I'm just you know there's one or two reservations about Ben White physically yet. Maybe he's not you know fully developed yet. Um, you know we saw him struggle in the air against Ivan Tony, and like you said, if he goes on one of those um, runs upfield that gap you know it needs to be um be filled by somebody and i think tomiyasu has kind of the the natural inclination to to kind of um you know set back you know fill in no fuss just just give me that space and he can do it so he can very much be um that kind of central defender if we need him to be um, and i think his his sort of skill set very much complements ben white in that sense because you know, Bologna are not really a, an attacking side um, by any stretch. But him as a as a player, his uh, sort of natural tendencies will not take him forward. He's very much, mm. um, you know, uh, I I will stay here on the touchline if you need me. But in, in terms of his sort of profile and and what he offers to the side in terms of aerial duels, tackles. Um, he's very much defensively inclined and I think that could suit Ben White a lot actually Um, even if I don't agree with the notion that we've brought Tomiyasu in to babysit him
2: well yeah I'd I'd agree with that Um, the strengths that he has his size makes him a really good aerial presence and you know the stats bear that out Um, Arsenal have struggled from set pieces so far this season so adding a player of some height and presence uh really feels like a useful thing even if we're looking at a right back ostensibly to you know to do a little bit more than that but giving us some more presence from set pieces from corners as we're defending uh is is a good thing and in the air he really is very good
0: yeah absolutely and it's quite strange because his first season in Italy um when he played primarily as a center back his aerial dual numbers um you know were fairly average and I'm not sure what happened last season but they just they almost uh, more than doubled. Um, And yeah, like, as you mentioned, his size, his physique, he's very kind of noticeable on the pitch and, you know, having watched a bit of film, um, it's always his head that seems to be on the end of the ball. I'm not sure if he has this, you know, crazy ability to, to read the play or, or just know where the ball is going to be, but it's always his head there flicking them on or heading away. And I think, Definitely. We just needed a bit of a bit of size and authority in there because, you know, we are I don't want to go into the typical cliches about Arsenal being soft. But, you know, we do kind of lack some some presence and size in both boxes. And I think adding him for sure will be will be a big bonus for us. And 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 yeah, I think he he can just give us some commitment, some bravery in, in, in times when we perhaps lack it
2: what about his ability on the ball um you know in terms of his passing in terms of what he might contribute to the build up going forward i mean one of the aspects i think that we're looking at this summer is is how are we going to improve from a from an offensive point of view how are we going to provide variety in our attack and we can all see and have seen the left-sided bias that exists when you've got Kieran Tierney in the team. We get him overlapped, we get crosses in, etc., etc. But there is a whole other side of the pitch that you can use for attacking, Uh, whether it's Nicolas Pepe out there, whether it's Bakayo Saka out there. And I do think the arrival of Martin Odegaard gives us a bit more balance in terms of how we attack because he he does um, favor a little bit that that right-hand side, at least when it comes to where he picks up the ball. So if we're looking for Tommy Asu to contribute in that area what are your thoughts in that regard
0: yeah absolutely I mean I think his distribution will surprise a lot of people to be honest um, you know we spoke before about Bologna being quite conservative um, but in terms of their in terms of their side uh, side and their squad um last season he was you know second for progressive passes um and and for passes into the final third so you know I think his attacking numbers people would have seen that the the little radars and the charts and think oh there's not really much going on here but i think mm. that's very much uh through design as opposed to his his limitations and what you know we spoke about Nuno Tavares potentially being very comfortable on his weaker side you know watch yeah, watch a youtube compilation of Tommy and you can see him pinion balls with with both feet with ease you know it looks very natural um, I'm not saying he's, he's Santi Gazzola, but yeah. you know, 40, 50 yard diagonals, he looks very natural. You know, he could even bring out the ball on his left side because he's played at left center back before. And, you know, he's got this, this nice habit of bringing the ball out slightly. I'm not like Ben White, but he can bring it out and then he just, he just dinks these little balls into the channel. Um, and I think that could really help potentially Nicola Pepe, uh, if he, you know, if we, we really need to get him off that right touchline and i think having odegaard there like you mentioned but also tomiyasu who can who can just kind of um clip balls in behind could really could really help us um this season i think we'll be seeing a lot of it so in terms of his distribution um you know don't be fooled by the by the numbers because i think if you watch him you can see him he's very comfortable he can look clunky at times maybe but i think that's just down to his size um, and not down to his technique because I think he's very technically accomplished, and I think he will surprise people next year yeah. or this year. Yeah, we well,
2: hopefully, hopefully this year that would be handy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ben White as well is another player who's comfortable pinging the ball with both feet, which I think is a you know an interesting aspect of of what we've done. Whether that's deliberate or not, I'm not quite sure. Um, and I think maybe more footballers should be capable with their so-called wrong foot than they actually are. Um, so mm-hmm. we'll wait and see what that. Uh, helps us do it in uh, in defence uh, and as we go forward and as the game starts um, coming thick and fast again. I mean, what do we know about his pace? He seems to be pretty quick from what I've seen. Not lightning or anything like that, but but when you're a defender, recovery pace is important in the modern game because of the way that teams play and because you can end up with space behind you is. Like you wouldn't say, for example, that Callum Chambers is the the quickest player on earth. Is that going to be an issue for him in the Premier League? No, not for
0: me. I mean, the thing with Callum Chambers is I think he's very strong technically, but he doesn't trust his body. Um, he does not want people running at him. He can't move his feet quickly. You know, when he's turned, it's, it's pretty much good night. I mean, we saw even with Greenish the other day, he just he wanted none of that. Mm. Um, was not interested at all. And I think with Tom Miasu, despite his size, he's a lot more agile, he can move his feet quickly and he he loves showing players to the byline because he backs, he backs himself, you know. Um, things, you know, coming inside, things get a bit more complicated. Um, I don't think he's particularly comfortable showing players inside, but I think if he, his natural tendency is to take them down to the byline and he really backs himself, whether it's a, You know, um, matching them for pace or just giving them a little arm just to get his body on side. I think if you watch him, his defending is very much textbook. I mean, it's you know he's been coached very well. Mm. Um, Everything is is what you learnt as a kid. You know, show him down the line, take him away from goal. Um, His body is naturally very crouched. Um, His kind of defensive stance, whereas Chambers is very upright all the time. Yeah, Um, but if you're lower down to the ground, it gives you more you know ability to to change your pace and move inside or outside and i just think he'll offer us a lot more security in that sense because he feels like more of a natural um player that's able to cover distances and you know having watched him i've got no real issue with his pace because um you know syria has has a fair you know selection of pacey wingers um, and I think against Juventus in particular, even though Bologna lost 4-1 on the day, I think he was very good against Juan Cuadrado. There were more clips I've watched of him, you know, uh, against Jovino and, and he did not give him a single problem. I know he's become a bit of a meme, but in Italy he's he's been, you know, fairly good. So, you know, I think in terms of his defending, he trusts his body, which is already a huge tick. But in terms of his technique and 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 how he defends... Um, it's not, not just his body, but when he goes, when he stays, how he interprets the space to cover, I think he's very intelligent. And again, it kind of fits into what we were saying before about him being that kind of right back, right center back Mm. hybrid, as opposed to the more, uh, Kieran Tierney swashbuckling fullback.
2: Well, look, he's the latest really quite interesting player that we've brought in this summer, six players in. And I suppose they're interesting because we, we really haven't seen an awful lot of them um, so far this season. And we're all hoping that they can develop and they can grow. So just before we finish this up, Phil, some thoughts on the transfer window in general based on what we've done, I suppose, more from an incoming Uh, point of view than an outgoing point of view because I'm not sure there's a huge amount of discussion there or or we're not going to say anything that hasn't already been said but after the opening three games of the season which have been you know an unmitigated disaster there's no other way of, of putting it from an Arsenal perspective how do you see the shape of the squad right now so Arsenal have brought in a goalkeeper three defenders a central midfielder and an attacking midfielder to a team which has had issues with creativity and scoring goals, is it a case that maybe they didn't do enough from an attacking perspective, or is it a case that by bringing in these uh, these other players, they're putting together a platform to elicit improvement from the attacking players that we already have?
0: I, I mean, for me, it's a mixture of both. Um you know, if you'd asked Arsenal fans if we needed to buy a right centre-back to replace David Luiz, you know, Saliba aside, that's a big one, I know, Yeah. Um, the answer would have been yes. If you asked Arsenal fans if we needed a backup goalie or a right-back, the answer would have been yes. And we've done that. Back-up left-back for Kieran Tierney, we've done that as well. So, you know, whether people can grumble about the lack of attacking additions, I think defensively, we had additions to make as well. And I think... In terms of the profiles, in terms of um, you know both in terms of their ages um, and their and their technical quality, I think we've recruited well on the whole. I'm happy with Ben White, even if maybe we've overpaid. The same with Ramsdale. We kind of have to wait and see um, what happens with him. But you know, everybody knows that the situation surrounding Leno is far from um, clear. So maybe there's even potential for him to break into the side this season. Uh, Tavares, completely fine with him. Low risk, uh, low, wa- low wage, kind of just there in case of emergency. So that's absolutely fine. And I'm happy with Tommy as well, because I think right back was a huge problem um, for me. I think Bayerin needed the loan chambers, even though he came into the side last season, he wasn't up to much. Um, this time around, Cedric just, get him gone. I don't know, wherever he wants to go, just get him out. <laughs> um, you know, so, you know, I have concerns about the attack, but for me, the concerns lie in the coaching and not the personnel, unfortunately. I I really believe there's goals in this attack. Saka can do it. Smithrow can do it. Aubameyang and Lacazette, no matter what we think of them, there is at least 10 goals each um, in those two players. You know, Erdegaard needs to contribute now as well. And I think, as much as they need to improve on a, on an individual basis. Um, A lot of the issues for me lie in, in the the lack of attacking freedom and verve they are afforded from the coach. So hopefully we can strike a balance with that because I think on the whole, the squad is talented and you know, it's not Chelsea levels and it's not city uh, you know, United level, but it's not eighth. I mean, there's no way that this is an eighth place squad. So for me, it's about, you know, we had to raise the floor of this squad and we've done so. I'm very excited about Sambi um, as well coming in. So for me, we've we've gone about things the right way, targeting young players who can contribute in the short term, but also offer excitement for the long term. And sorry, Mikel, but future-proof the club. Um, I think a lot of these signings were made, um, you know, for him, but also what happens next whether that's Arteta or not so which is a good thing I don't think we've done that very well recently Um, so in terms of the overall business I'm happy and I think Arteta you know there's no real hiding place for him now because he's been backed and these are his players these are his targets Um, and for me there's a big question mark over him and being able to coach an attack and I think that's where the, the real improvement has to lie for me personally, because I'm happy with, with the arrivals. And I know the, the departures were difficult, but the squad is in a good shape for me. All
2: right. Well, look, it is down uh, to Mikel Arteta to get a tune out of this particular orchestra. We uh, hope he does that and we hope he does that uh, as quickly as possible, obviously. But uh, for now, we'll leave it there, Phil. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed to Phil. You can find him on Twitter at Phil Costa, at Phil Costa. And you can find a link to his profile of Takehiro Tomiyasu uh, in the show notes, or you can just head on over to arsblog.com. You'll find it there in the columnist section. you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host now on the arscast to delve into what happened in the transfer window to talk about who did what why they did it and lots more i'm delighted to welcome back to the show it's david ornstein from the athletic hi david it's uh, it's been a while
1: hi andrew thanks it's Long overdue, isn't it? We've been trying to get together for a while and um, it's great to be back on with you.
2: Yeah, you seem to be a busy man, so I'll I'll let you off this time. It has been a crazy summer from an Arsenal perspective. There's been a lot going on and before we delve into the nuts and bolts of of all of that, I suppose what I want to ask first is, over the course of the summer it became quite clear that there was a, a very defined strategy when it comes to recruitment. And the the kinds of players that Arsenal were going to bring in, in terms of the age profile. So we've got two twenty one year olds in, uh, two twenty two year olds, and two twenty three year old players in the six players that Arsenal have brought in this summer. Even some of the other names that we were linked with were players of around that age. Nobody was really over twenty four years of age. So that seems to have been a very definite plan. How far back? was that strategic decision made? And, you know, can you give us some insight into into how that would have been brought about? Like, who are the people involved that sat down and said, what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? And what way are we going to implement this?
1: Well, Andrew, I think it goes back quite a way. And before people might think, I, I don't think this was a strategy, that was established on the eve of the transfer window or the months coming into it. I think it has been the plan since Edu took sole control following the departure of Raul Sanlehi. Perhaps it was a thought that they had even prior to that. I'm not too sure. Certainly prior to that, the uh, the actions spoke louder than words if youth was the strategy, because in came Pablo Mari, Cedric Suarez... Prior to that, David Luiz. The Willian signing is one which I was opposed to at the time in terms of I didn't think it was going to work out for any party. I don't want a footballer to have a bad move. I don't want a club to take on a player who's not right for them. And I think we could all see it a mile off. And I'll give credit to Arsenal fans. Many got behind that signing once it actually happened and realised that his stats were good in his final season at Chelsea and welcome him into your club like you should when when a a new signing comes in, uh, an attacking player who's had a really good career on the whole. Um, But the previous concerns were very quick in coming to fruition. And I think that was an anomaly. We don't need to pick over the bones of that right now unless you want to later. But it, it was not in keeping with the way that Edu was looking to take stuff from the moment he was... In sole command, he was very clearly, and it was explained by lots of people at the club, looking to build this young team, young squad for the future, blending it with experienced players. And yes, I am confused by the fact that summer of 2020 and previous seemed about experience to help the young homegrown talent come through. And summer of 2021 seems, no, we're going all young. Forget about the old experienced players. Mm. And that raises concerns that we we can explore in terms of the strategy and the structure and and the coordination and contrasting visions, etc. But straight to your question, yes, it was the idea of Edu to build a young squad of this age profile, to blend them with world-class, experienced players to bring Arsenal, in his mind, back to the top of competition, Mm. domestic and and European, in a number of years. And I know that was something which, when explained to Mikel Arteta, was completely understandably a a bit of a shock, uh, or maybe shock's the wrong word, but anyone in his position when he became Arsenal head coach and then manager understands that you can't wait for tomorrow. <laughs> and as noble as it is to plan for the future, you also need to get results now. And I think Edu was trying to impress on Mikel for a long time that this can happen. We can, we can weather the storm. We're going to have some tough times. We're prepared for it to get worse before it gets better. And I reported at the time, this is in, in the year 2020, I think, that they're looking at this plan coming to fruition in two to three years time, you can go back and check some of my comments. Mm. I said sort of 22, 23, and they're going to have to ride a rough period in the meantime to get to where they want to go. But it was very clearly articulated to me then that Edu had the backing of the hierarchy in rolling out this vision in implementing it and that they would stay strong in the hard times. Now we're in the hardest of times, Mm. so that I'm sure will lead us further into the conversation. But it's not a knee-jerk to my knowledge, it's a very clear strategy. And please, anybody listening to this, I'm not defending it, I'm not taking sides. (laughs) I am just telling you what their thinking was, and it will be up to them whether it works or not, yeah,
2: sure. I mean, look, we're just we're trying to deal in facts, and and this is what it is. It's not necessarily uh, endorsement of it or anything like that. I'm quite curious as to your your phrase there when when you talk about Edu and how he is in in sole command, and as the technical director, I think that's what people would expect from somebody in that role uh, at a football club that he basically dictates is the wrong word, but decides, I guess, what the what the strategy for the club is in terms of recruitment and maybe even in terms of how how a team plays that feels like something that that's a bit further down the line for Arsenal so I mean how involved in this is Mikel Arteta because I think one of the things that would maybe not confuse people but I think there is a perception that Mikel Arteta because of the promotion that he got to manager rather than just being head coach and because of everything that he has said and everything he's done since he's come in and how, how open he has been about what he feels needs to be done at the football club, that there is a measure of authority there that is perhaps equal to Edu or, or even, uh, above Edu in some ways that, you know, there's this idea that Edu, um, you know, was very much involved in the previous setup with Raul Sanyehi and, and everything else. And that, he is now perhaps working more with Mikel Arteta than, than, uh, above Mikel Arteta. So can you give us a little bit on, on how that dynamic is working at the club right now? Because I think James made the point on the Arscast extra the other day, and it was a good one that, that any manager is going to want players who are ready, who are experienced, who have the requisite quality to to make your team more competitive and building a team is 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 much more difficult and much more troublesome and you know when you're the guy in the firing line you can understand why you might want a bit more ready-made experience. So I'm just curious as to how that dynamic has worked and and you know what sort of input Mikel Arteta Mikel Arteta would have had into this strategic decision
1: Well, I think, again, we need to take it back to provide the context. Raoul Sanlehi had become all-powerful following the departure of Ivan Gazidis and Sven Mislintat. He had created um, a power base from which it appeared he he wouldn't be shifted. Obviously, that changed. Um, He (laughs) brought Edu in. We remember that process, which involved move for Monchi and mm. consideration of other candidates and Edu eventually uh, got the role but he was very much sort of working for you could say um Raul Sanlehi who was head of football with Raul Sanlehi gone um Edu steps forward and and is very clear. Like a lot of us have seen Edu over the years and heard him speak and you've seen the fans have seen the interviews. And yeah, I think he, he'd probably like to do more. He comes from a country where the technical director fronts up in the press conferences and, and often announces the team selection and answers all questions and appears in the media. And, and you know, that is largely what happens on the continent as well. If you look at Monchi at Sevilla, Tiago Pinto at Roma just this week, holding a press conference to analyse the transfer window. Um, And Edu's the sort of character that I think would like to do that. Maybe it's not such a done thing in England or at Arsenal. Um, But he stepped forward and and it was very clear to all of us that this was going to be his project. And Arteta at the time was head coach. um, And he is responsible for... If not hiring and firing managers, at least recommending that to the board um, and working with the head coach manager to take um, the positional requirements and find players uh, to, to offer to the manager um, uh, and various options in each of those positions. You know, we all know how that model is meant to work. Yeah. Mikel Arteta's promotion um, to manager was something that I think. Arteta himself was in favour of. Um, Clearly, there's been huge conversation about this and a lot of people at, around, outside Arsenal, close to the club, feel this was a big mistake and that even if it was going to happen, you still needed a really respected, powerful operator, whether it be Sanlehi or, or somebody else who can provide the shield for both the technical director and the head coach manager, who Mm. can be the figurehead of that operation, who can front up to the executives, who can front up to the media, who can work the corridors of power, who can deal with everything, um, football and non-football, that allows the head coach manager to just focus on their role. So Arteta enthusiastically taking on this role of, greater prominence um you know we can't have sympathy for that because he's laying his own bed there and and it does come with additional responsibilities Mm. um which i hope for his sake he revels in in his career arsenal and, and potentially beyond but at the moment it seems like he's swimming against the tide a bit because he's having to by the nature of the title manager probably get involved in stuff that I don't think Arsenal's coach manager at the moment should be. Arsenal just need to be focused on Arsenal's leader needs to be focused on just training up this team urgently. Mm. And um, of course you're going to have conversations around recruitment and things like that, because he's desperate to build a team that in his mind can um, fulfill his, his requirements can can um, implement his vision and start playing the football that he, s- of course, wants to play. Um, you know, speaking to people at the club, th- w- there's this bit in this narrative outside that it's it's gone back to the Arsene Wenger era. I don't get that sense. I get the sense that with Arsene, everything was in his hands. Mm. Everything had to be approved by him before it took place, even the buying of teacups in the canteen you know <laughs> I'm exaggerating yeah, know. listening um, uh, but he was genuinely all-powerful whereas I don't think Mikel uh, is to the same extent or you really can be in football these days so he is more of a manager but he is not the Ferguson Wenger level of power but I, I, I'm digressing a bit from your actual question they are kind of like the dual heads yeah because of this contentious rise to, to manager. But within the club structure, as much as Mikel's word is is carries huge weight and they are building around him, they do still have strong faith in him and it's going to take things getting dramatically worse, I'm sure, for that to change. Edu is, to my knowledge, the... The traditional technical director. Well, when I say traditional, I don't mean historic, but in, in modern football, sure. he is the man who is in charge of the transfers and um, heavily influential in, in contract renewals, in the decision-making process and the execution of them. Of course, Richard Garlick's on board now and we'll speak about him too. Um, some people say, "Ah, oh, there's, you know, I'm not sure if Edu's power base is weakening and if he could be the next one out. I see the same rumours as, as you, Andrew. But I don't have any evidence to suggest that um actually internally cronkies Tim Lewis Vinay, Richard Garlick, and various others here and here or there are not continuing with this um pathway irrespective of the largely
2: understandable noise outside sure I mean just going back to something you said um about maybe there being a piece missing in terms of the the structure the executive structure of the club like that guy who would be there to take the heat off the head coach manager the the technical director etc cetera, etc cetera, that sort of figurehead um if you want to call him a sporting director rather than the technical director somebody who maybe exists you know above that you know if people are talking about that and aware of that is there any sense that there might be Uh, A plan to put somebody like that in place or are they content with the setup that they've got right now where we have a manager and a technical director who, as you say, appear to be very closely intertwined where the failure of one is probably uh, going to have some consequences for the other.
1: Yeah, it's a, a really good question that I don't have a precise answer to, so I'm not okay. going to lie to our audiences and say, yeah, I, I hear somebody's coming in, or absolutely not. So mm. um, it's a bit of a fence-sitting one in which you say, I don't know. Mm. Um, but again, explaining the wider picture here, when Raúl Sanlehi left and Has Fahmy left, it was just about the... Like, It it had to be the end of all of this change. And then they needed to find someone. So Richard Garlick came in in for Huss. It had to be the end. Everybody at and around the club acknowledged that there had been far too much change in far too short a period. Considering historically at Arsenal, there had been barely any change for a couple of decades. Um, And it was destabilising off the pitch, and I believe, as a personal opinion, that that has filtered down onto the pitch as well. Others may have different views, but it can't be helpful. It's not conducive to success. And I don't think Edu wanted any more change. Once that, the Sanlehi one had been done, Garlick was on the way in, Hossfami was out, and I think he was of the view, and it was relayed to the board, no more change, please. Now leave this as the structure he, he's he got great self-belief, Edu. He's a very charismatic figure. He's a very nice man, as any of you um, who have met him will know. Um, and he believes he can take on that mantle. When I've said loads, and, and I'm not the only one, he's never worked within the English game, um, obviously in this type of role. He was a player at Arsenal and a legendary one at that. Um, he'd only been technical director at Corinthians and the Brazil FA Um hadn't built a scouting network, recruitment network, had to build contacts. And, you know, I'm sure everyone in that role sort of knows agents and the odd executive and ex-player here and there, but this isn't just any old club or job. It's Arsenal Football Club trying to compete at the absolute elite level. But he backed himself on that front and he backed himself working alongside um, Mikel to, to implement that. However, people with more experience and more clout within the game can't believe that they don't have um, Mm. that extra person that you're talking about. Um, And look, I don't know if Sanlehi was right or wrong. You know, one minute he was being hailed by all the fans, the next minute it was the complete opposite. Um, Many within football rate him extremely highly. Some others don't. He had more of a commercial background than than a football background. But there are really big hitters out there. And I think it's a bit disrespectful for me to start naming them because people will take that to mean, oh, could he be coming into our sure, yeah, I've yeah. seen the names that are in the media and, and around. And, and I don't know what agendas are at play to try and get people into positions or or not. But it's a really tricky balancing act. They've all said they don't want more change. And we've said no more change is important. But at the same time, I do think the structure is a little bit weak and struggling in a way that it is not at Manchester City. It is not at Chelsea. It is not at Manchester United. It is not at Liverpool. That could be subject to change at Liverpool, but even if it does change, as I reported in my Monday column in May with Michael Edwards, they will have a succession plan in place. And you can extrapolate that over to the continent and lower down the Premier League as well. I don't think Arsenal have... um, quite enough of of the footballing expertise that they should. And I don't want that to be implied as a criticism because they will say we do and more bringing somebody else in could wreck the chemistry that they're trying to build slowly and mm. and um, organically. Um, but again, personal opinion and preference. I think the level of club is all well and good intending that it's just Edu Richard Garlick as his sidekick. Mikel, but is that's that's a raw and inexperienced um, dual head, sure, with an experienced guy next to them and a very highly rated guy in Richard Garlick. But he hasn't worked at an Arsenal level club just yet until now, and I do think, in comparison to the other clubs, there is something lacking structurally. I mean, not every owner is a football expert expert so I don't think that's a stick to beat the Cronkies with you can beat them with whatever stick stick you want but they're not unique in that but as you come down when you see sort of Vinay so not sort of area of expertise around football specifically of his many um, strengths uh, Tim Lewis a lawyer and an Arsenal fan one of the piece pieces we wrote on the Athletic said there was there was some favour amongst sections of the hierarchy for, for bringing back somebody like a David O'Leary who isn't in and around the Arsenal boardroom and director's box. Um, you see people like Pat Rice there, certain matches and others who maybe can help this operation, this rebuilding job, this, um, mm. this, this, uh, project, sorry, yeah. I hate using it. I'm just try and think of something else from a sporting and footballing perspective. But it's also not easy. It's not like suddenly Arsenal would become masters of the transfer market because they bring David O'Leary or Pat Rice or Ralph Raniak or Michael Emanalo or Mark Overmars. You know, it might still go wrong. And sure. that's why these things are really difficult. I do feel that the structural issues have got Arsenal into a bit of a mess on and off the pitch and and something feels like it ne- needs to be done. I don't know exactly what.
2: Yeah, I, do, do you think maybe there's an issue of perception? Because you talk about Edu, and while we're on him, we might as well broach this particular thing, you know, and he does seem like a nice man. But I also feel like, you know, looking at it externally and looking at it as a fan and as somebody who who wants the club to succeed and to do well, I'm right behind this strategy of of bringing in young players because Arsenal have done the old player thing. It hasn't worked. So do something different. I think there's some logic to it. There is a a need for a rebuild. But talking about clout and talking about how you're perceived in the football world, has there been any discussion of, uh, and I know this might sound trivial, but like during periods of this preseason and periods of this transfer window, when Arsenal fans have been looking for the club to to present itself in the right way possible, we see pictures of the technical director on holidays with Raul Sanyehi, with Kia Jurabcian, individuals about whom people have had some concerns because of perceived influence on aspects of the transfer business, etc., etc., Edu having a holiday, which, of course, he is entitled to have a holiday. But the perception of the work that you do can be influenced by the the, the public image that you present of yourself as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, has that been in any way discussed or an area of concern for other people at the club? Uh, or, or are we as fans perhaps not seeing all the other stuff that goes on in the background, which makes Edu perfectly entitled to take a holiday and if he wants to take a picture so what you know maybe that's the way that he looks at it or the club look at it
1: yeah it's a fascinating area that a lot of us think and muse over um and i'm sure i know uh, the same happens inside the club it's a big club and and a lot of people see the same things as us um and think like what's he doing um i think the optics are particularly poor, especially the images with Keir Jurabjian and Raul Sanlehi, as much as you're entitled to do what you want and do and uh, be with who you want. Um, but what's gone before over the last few years um, and the clear departure that Arsenal took from Raul Sanlehi, which has never been explained publicly, um, if there was anything um, to explain publicly, um, I don't think it would have been made for comfortable viewing Mm. for given all of the scrutiny around those people for the current technical director, who's meant to be leading the club forward to be with them. I don't know of the hierarchy being disgruntled. I just think it didn't send out a good image, especially during a transfer window. And I'm not sure they would go around doing that again. Maybe you do it at the time, not kind of realizing the impact and it goes back to Edu being a, a, sort of happy go lucky guy that doesn't really um care about the public perception he's on social media we've seen some stories that his daughter has um has you know had to shut off her no her um direct messages or something mm. because of the abuse that was raining in for her father no one uh, condones any of that just condemn it but um but yeah it, it i mean edu and anyone like other technical directors will have taken time off. Like Chiqui Bagheera Stain was away in Spain at one point during the summer. Um, but they all get on with their work. You know, you can take your laptop and your phone and you can spend 23 hours of the day working and you get pictured yeah. cooking a barbecue or being on a boat or being at a restaurant and then everyone comes down on you like a ton of bricks. But those others don't tend to post images on social media. And so... Given the context of where Arsenal are and, mm. and it is a bit of a mess at the moment on the pitch, at least that's just going to trigger people and antagonise them who already have questions um, over over somebody like Edu. And yeah, yeah, there are people inside the club that that you know are they probably don't know exactly what he does because a lot of it takes place behind the scenes with a small entrusted circle of people um who from what i know all speak incredibly highly of Erdu and his work ethic his um the, the ideas that that they hope will come to fruition on the long run and and these aren't people that would just sit around and and mm. accept a blagger or or somebody who's not doing things the right way, um, I think that would that would come out. But yes, and I'm not defending, I'm not endorsing or defending. There are people, I do think there are people wondering, you know, exactly what the role is. And especially when there are people at the club who see Mikel Arteta, whether you like him or not, working so hard every single day, every living, breathing second to try and arrest Mm. this rot and yeah. to try and turn it around. It's not working at the minute but I don't think anyone questions his efforts mm. and the energy that he's applying and you only ever see him in training kit or on the side of the pitch whereas that's slightly different with Edu and, and and it seems that people have jumped on that a couple of times especially with the barbecue and above all of that I think given what's gone before with Arsenal and you know the Cronkies from what we hear, paying closer attention uh, to what's going on after all the speculation around agents and this and that and the other. And having Josh Cronkey has now been over, we saw, which is, I think, the first time since the outbreak of the pandemic. Mm. And uh, maybe it was one time at the end of last season and then once more recently. And installing Tim Lewis there as well in, in recent times. You would imagine that they've got a sharp eye for anything that they're not happy with at the moment and so yeah i i I do think that's more perception i don't think you can read into pictures of people having a holiday and say he's a good or bad technical director but yes i don't think pictures like that are helpful especially with such a sensitive fan base yeah
2: i am I'm going to come to incoming business in a moment, but I think one one of the aspects, I suppose, that you would judge the work of a technical director on is um, the sales that you make. And Arsenal have had a lot of players um, up for grabs, if you like, this summer. Only one of them has been sold, Joe Willock to Newcastle. And it's a decent deal. I think um, Lewis Ambrose on one of our Patreon podcasts basically said, though, Joe Willock, sold Joe Willock to Newcastle based on what he did there at the end of uh, last season with his incredible goal-scoring record. They really wanted him. And I guess that does explain some of it. When a player is valuable, when a player, the perception of a player is that he is useful and that he can do something for you, it's a lot easier to sell that player, you know, because it's coming off the back of performances or what have you. Nevertheless, there's homegrown talent at the club that was up for sale and didn't go out, Um, a lot of loan deals, even taking into account the current state of the football market. We all know finances are very, very uh, impacted by the pandemic and the lack of fans, etc., etc. Were there targets for Edu when it came to the outgoing business? Because, uh, you know, whether you're uh, a fan of the Cronkies or not, the money has been there for the incoming players 140 150 million pounds the biggest window in in Arsenal's history. So the financial backing was there for the players that that they wanted to bring in. However, it does feel like that kind of outlay requires some measure of of income to offset it. So are you aware that um there was a target perhaps for generating revenue from player sales and If so, have we fallen well below that? Or is there an acceptance that because of this market, we could sell some players next summer, uh, clubs will have more money, some of the loans with options and obligations could be taken up, so that will go some way to doing that?
1: Well, your last point was the vision a year ago, and it hasn't come to fruition Mm. of, of, you know, um, jam tomorrow. Um, I don't know if there was a specific target. If there was, I'm not aware of it. Um, But yes, the word coming out of the club and people close to them coming into this window was that they can generate really big money for these outgoings. Um, There was even suggestions of around £100 million. These were forecasts from people who work in the industry, um, work at Arsenal, speak to people at Arsenal. So you're looking at um, maybe a Lacazette, maybe a Bellerin, a Torreira, a Guendouzi, a Joe Willock. Um, there's probably a couple of names that Maitland have Maitland-Niles, maybe. Maitland-Niles, you know, Reese Nelson. Eddie and Kettier. Eddie and Kettier. You add them up, you know, a 10 here, an 8 there, a 15 here, mm. 20 there, and you can get into some serious revenues. Um, that was the plan of Arsenal also in, in the summer of 2020, and that's why there was some investment um, towards the start of the market. Am I right in thinking? 2020?
2: Probably towards the end, wasn't it? Because it was Gabrielle, and then Thomas party.
1: Was there someone before Gabrielle? There was William. Um, Gabrielle. I think there was somebody else. I'm trying
2: to think, I'll have a look. Um,
1: there was, you lose track of all the all the too, different yeah. positions, but um, but yeah. Anyway, the, the, they were going for a lot of players. Some of them, some of them came in. They were stealing themselves and readying themselves for a, a party or our. Um, And so the question was, well, how are you going to balance this in in a pandemic? And everybody Mm. was saying, wait till the end of the window before, you know, judging how this is is going to be financed. And Arsenal were not alone in failing. Even the heralded Chelsea failed to get players out, um, at at least to the level that they wanted to. Um, And so that was going to make this summer all the more important for that actually Arsenal probably bridged the gap to an extent by doing so much outgoing work in January not for money but just to at least clear the decks and relieve them of some of the salaries that they were paying Um, and so this one was the real this was meant to be the real deal window for outgoings and Chelsea came back to the fore in that sense and even Man United got a good sale in Dan James and they are very poor sellers traditionally Um, so they don't need to be amazing sellers with their wealth Manchester City also traditionally, well, sorry, in recent years, not spectacular sellers. Um, They did all right this window, actually. Arsenal, no, they fell short of expectations in the sales department. And I think you can look at a bit of the inexperience in their setup because some of these guys who work in the industry just know how to work the market. They know how to strike deals and convince clubs of their players' worth, even if it means playing them a couple of times before deadline day. I'm not sure that was the case with Dan James. It may just be a a happy coincidence that Mm. he started two of United's first three games and then got got a a lucrative move. Um, I think it's disappointing when you look at the, the money that has not come in for some players Arsenal paid big money for or should have value. Hector Bellerin, 26 years old, yeah, he had the ACL, but Arsenal surely could have garnered some money for him. Torreira was a big investment and it's just flitted away. Gwenduzi, you know, whatever you think of him and his behaviour, he's a very highly rated young player who I think is now in the French full squad again. Mm. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you, you should be getting significant money for him. There is another side to this story. And again, you know, please don't think I'm defending because I'm just saying it as it is. and And the truth because I was the one who reported the Roma interest in Lacazette and and the suggestions that they were willing to go to about 30 million euros last summer. You will speak to some people at the club and, and they will explain to you, well, if you were on the end of that phone call and they're not offering the actual money, they're suggesting what they'd be willing to pay or we don't receive it in writing or they say they will one day and then the next day they say to you, actually, can we do it as a loan with an option to buy? Um, and similar in, in this case with Everton and Ainsley, Maitland, Niles, everyone was getting excited and and we're not the ones who see the offer, you know. yeah, he, He's an England international who Arsenal either would have wanted to recoup a, a really strong loan fee or a really high obligation to buy um, if, if they're going to be who we want them all to be, which is really good sellers yeah. or sell on a permanent basis to Everton for big money now. Mm. He's 24 years old and and has hopefully a really good future ahead of him, whether that's at Arsenal or elsewhere. There is more to this skill than we all understand. And so unless you are on the other end of that phone or email, you don't know what the offer is. But I maintain that Arsenal haven't done well enough in getting rid of players and... That is something that they definitely need to improve on going forward because I think they do have a good squad. I think they have a squad of like players that could could sell or could either excel for them or, or sell for mm. for decent money, and and it's not happening um, in either of those things at the moment.
2: I mean, is is the Granit Xhaka? Situation: oh, sorry, yeah. a, a perfect example of 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 that kind of thing. Where, look, he had a very good Euros. He's twenty eight years of age. He's got some good years ahead of him. He's got, you know, some issues um, at Arsenal, but you know he's a reliable uh, player, at least in terms of his availability. Very rarely injured, durable guy. Was keen on a move to Roma. Roma were obviously keen on a move. It looked like Arsenal were willing to facilitate that. And then all of a sudden it falls apart. And Arsenal extend his contract. It does suggest some some muddled thinking in terms of um, how you approach selling players. Like if you're willing to let him go, why are you extending his contract a week later? And I know Arteta said that you know we never wanted him to leave, but you know that's that's a different side to it entirely.
1: It's a really hard one, the Jaka situation, because when you hear of that Roma interest, you everyone thought that well, that's going to happen now, mm. um, and it, and rightly so. He's you know had a tumultuous career with Arsenal. Everyone accepts he seems a, a decent person and and a good player, um, and maybe it, it's time to go. And it, it, judging by some of his comments, it seemed that he was up for it, and um, that Roma would come in strong and it would get done. Small bit of sympathy for Arsenal. The point we just made, if the offer is inadequate for a player who everyone's been raving about for the Euros, they would have been battered for just giving him away. It, it, it seems that the offer wasn't good enough from Roma. So that, that, that's the the sympathetic side. Um, the potentially critical side is, is yeah, suddenly he doesn't just get a contract extension, but um, he's wearing the captain's armband. And it's extremely confusing for fans and, and media and, and all of us onlookers. And it's not been a, a great start to the season for him like it hasn't been for for the team. Um, I mean, some of it may be in protection of value and it may come to be seen as quite clever. If a twenty he has a good season and a 20 million offer comes in for him next summer mm. because he had that small extension, then everyone will say, well done, that was actually quite canny. It's hard to understand that in the moment, and it might not happen. So we may come down on them like a ton of bricks with with justification. But they find themselves in a position where they don't have a decent offer, and his value is going to go to nothing unless they trigger the extension. So maybe they're hedging their bets that he can have a good season, and they can extract some value for him. I don't think the contract extension was like a we're rewarding you, you're one of our leading players. Mm. And it's not like a Bakayo Saka or a, or an Emile Smith-Rowe where you're trying to tie down their future and they deserve to get loads more money. I think that was a business decision. I, d- I don't know for sure, but I think it was a business decision. Yeah. But I do agree with you. The perception of the Jaka saga this summer is yet another blow to Arsenal's operation. And I've got to underline, when I'm trying to explain all of this stuff with both sides of the story, the results are there for all of us to see at the moment. It's disastrous right now. And many, many fans listening to this who have very little hope are justified in feeling that way because we, our eyes don't lie. Yeah. But this is trying to explain a bit more than just what's on the surface. Sure. I
2: mean, I think the fact that the club didn't do an official announcement of the Shaka contract extension tells you that it, it's not something that was look at this, this is great. You're all going to feel better after this happens. So, um, you know, the, the way it came out, I think, speaks to that. But look, let's talk about the incoming business because if there is hope, if there is some optimism out there, it is the fact that Arsenal have brought in six players during the transfer window. Um, the money that has been spent has reshaped the squad. Um, in terms of the the way this went down and in terms of the, the player identification side of things, you spoke about Edu maybe bringing some targets to Mikel Arteta and Arteta sort of taking his pick of those. I mean, my understanding is that at least a couple of those players were very, very much guys that Mikel Arteta himself specifically wanted going back to what you said earlier within the framework that the club have set out for recruitment. So, we're going to get you players of this age or thereabouts. These are the ones that we think uh, are available or the ones that we should look at. And Arteta has then decided, okay, well, this guy, this guy, this guy. Um, is that sort of how it's gone down in, in many of those cases? Because, you know, we're looking at Ben White. We're looking at Sambi Lakonga, We're looking at... Um, uh, I've forgotten who, well, Martin Odegaard, of course, who is, a I think, a fantastic signing and a, a player that, you know, is easy to get behind in terms of what he can bring to the team. So, you know, are, is that the way it sort of played out that Arteta has said, OK, well, this is these are the central defenders you're suggesting. I want this guy and this is the guy I want. These are the goalkeepers. This is the guy that I want.
1: Yeah, so I don't know specifically um, and in, like, really fine detail Whose voice carries most weight? Mm. What I do know is that Arteta's voice carries far more weight in this since that point we talked about earlier, mm. of rising from head coach to manager than Unai Emery's did in the recruitment process. Unai Emery was very vocal in his um, wishes. Uh, you know, he, I think he spoke to Harry Maguire um, before he decided. You know, it was actually just going to be between Man City and Man United. Um, Spoke to Wilfred Zaha, which is stuff we've seen publicly, and was quite clear in his thinking, but very little of it was um, acted upon by the hierarchy. I think they tried in certain instances, but ultimately, in the case of Nicola Pepe, that was their decision, not his. Whereas Mikel Arteta... um, is much more powerful in that dynamic. And so he wanted Martin Odegaard back. Like that was his decision. He was in the building. He had really impressed everybody at Arsenal as a player and as a character. And he seemed really happy there. So he was their first choice target. And this has been quite well reported. Mm. If they finally got a clear indication from Real Madrid that he wasn't coming... Then they would turn to alternative tar- targets, candidates. Um, you know, we know somebody like James Madison was highly thought of. There would have been a lot of players that were highly thought of. Um, I don't know personally, and I'm not doubting anybody else's reports, but I don't know of any sort of active pursuit for Madison. Mm. Um, it was as far as I know, again, full respect to everybody else, Martin Odegaard. Um, and, it was clearly explained to me that they will go until that clear signal comes from Real Madrid based on Mikel wanting him. Um, I'm sure he likes other players a lot as well. They would they would have had to put a different plan in place if it wasn't possible. Um, other players, Ben White seemed to be, I, I don't know specifically, but M- Mikel Arteta would have seen loads of him within English football. And, you know, wouldn't surprise me if, if if he was the driver of, of that as well. Um, I don't know specifically about Tavares. Um, feels, and this is speculation, so please take it as that, that it's more of an Edu type and Edu's people, the, the, the analytics and, and, and the pod of people that they've got there who would have targeted a really um, high potential, decent value mm. uh, left-back cover. Edu wanted a player of 20 to 22, was it, that I reported ages ago uh, for left back cover uh, to challenge Tierney, to back him up, to maybe succeed him in the future. And that seems to be what they've got. He's Portuguese. Um, so perhaps yeah. that's more an Edu type target. Um, Lukonga, again, more speculative, but there's the um, Vincent company link and Andalekt. And um, Mikel Arteta is very close to company. So uh feels like Arteta would have been pivotal in that um and he would have been on the phone to these boys you know he mm. would have been on the phone to those some of those guys and to to um to Aaron Ramsdale and to Odegaard and to Ben White and and you know convincing them talking to them about how he wants their strategy uh, how he wants them to fit into their strategy I don't know how much of that Unai Emery did ahead of signings but I know Mikel Arteta's been doing that and it shows his core to what they're trying to do and um, Asu was one that Edu had been considering for a long time Tottenham were in the mix some other clubs as well um, I know there were some that Mikel Arteta wasn't so keen on you know there were talks about a swap with Emerson Royal or swap plus money. Emerson Royal and um, Hector Bellerin. Don't think he was so keen. Maybe if Dest had been available as part of the swap, that would have been yeah. more attractive. And I think Barcelona would have been open with their financial problems, but um, but Dest didn't want to leave Barcelona only a year in. Mikel Arteta knows Barcelona really well, so so Tomiassu seems to. Um, you know, be one that feels like a mutual collaboration. I didn't hear of anyone specifically championing him more than the other. So I've given you a pretty vague answer because I don't want to pretend that I know who was pushing some more than others, but um, whether these are good signings, uh, whether they are going to be good signings, um, whether they are good value for money or terrible value for money I don't sense massive ructions behind the scenes over who they were going for. Whereas you know that Mikel Arteta... Sorry, you know that Unai Emery wanted to sign Wilfred Zaha and they went for Nicola Pepe. Yeah. He didn't He didn't say, no, Don't I don't want Pepe, but he had a clear target. As yet, and it may come out in coming weeks and months when we have conversations and make calls, you'll hear Mikel really wanted him and they gave him him. But at this point in time, mm. I'm actually hearing um that things are pretty collaborative and and everyone's on the same page
2: all right well look finally I suppose we have to talk a little bit about Mikel Arteta himself and the start to the season as you said has been horrendous it's really difficult pre-season wasn't great either there's a lot of concern obviously when your team is sitting bottom of the table you're looking at it and thinking "Uh uh-oh this is not great um there, there is a balance, isn't there, between giving a manager money, which speaks to a level of faith in him. Like if you're giving a manager, you're backing a manager to the tune of £150 million pounds with new signings, particularly when not much money has come in and they still brought in the, the right back uh, on deadline day. It's It suggests that those in charge have faith in Mikel Arteta to make the kind of team that Arsenal fans want to see from these players. At the same time, though, when a manager is given £150 million, however you rationalise it in terms of it takes time to build a team and we can all accept that, there's also a short-term need to deliver results on the pitch. So with that in mind, I mean how much pressure is there on Arteta internally as opposed to externally? Because externally, and I know we all exist in our social media echo chambers and everything else, and things feel a lot more intense online because that's the way it goes. But there must be some pressure internally as well. Uh, Mikel Arteta will know as well as anybody that he has to start winning games for Arsenal. You know, I, I think... They're going to give him more time inside than some people might outside. But, but how does that balance get struck? Mm.
1: Yeah, it's difficult because when you say he's been backed handsomely in the market and on the one hand you think, well, owners deserve credit for that. And I think they do. But it's all relative because two things you can point back to well, wh- where was the backing earlier mm. and and you shouldn't need to have a window of of these proportions because you should be gradually investing and maybe a cherry on the cake like a Lukaku each year sure Sol Niguez on loan or Jack Grealish type thing uh, you know that th- this it, sh- it struck of um trying to buy your way out of trouble and mm. And you should also look at it and say, "Well, are the owners like, applying a football vision to it? It, it? It's not just the number; it's the it's the quality." And sure. um, um, it, it's an act of faith, no doubt at all. It's it's like an amazing um, opportunity for Edu and Mikel Arteta specifically that the owners have put upon them. But if that doesn't work, you you know, as owners when you're looking at owners, you need to be fair and say, well, did they apply as owners the right level of footballing scrutiny and, and you know, responsibility with their opening of purse strings? I know one minute we're begging for money to be spent and the next minute we're saying, yeah, but be careful about how you spend that. But they're at the top of the club and, and that's a fair amount of scrutiny. Um, but no doubt with that, yeah, you, you you then can't sit bottom of the league. It's, it's absolutely uh, inconceivable in everybody's minds that Arsenal will stay there for long. And I think the complete expectation is that um, he will get some results together. Uh, he needs to urgently. And then they will start to very, very slowly take baby steps towards a recovery that let's face it, seem Arsenal seem to be in a perpetual cycle of this, you know, last turn of the year, 2020 into 2021, mm. He was Arteta was under the cosh, and then he turned it around with wins against Chelsea and West Brom, and steadied the ship. And then it sort of fell apart a bit at the end. And th- there was some mess inherited. I'll take that point, which is is legitimately raised by people who know what Arteta was dealing with. There were a lot of players that wanted to leave when he came into the club. The atmosphere wasn't good post Emery. You know, it was well documented that he had lost the dressing room for that, uh, one of a better phrase. Uh, there were communication issues um, and and a lot more. But at the same time, you can't talk about inheriting mess forever because Unai Emery could argue that after Arsene Wenger and everybody who comes into a club, David Moyes at Man United, Van Gaal, Mourinho, everyone that comes into Chelsea. But, you know that's the nature of the beast and you've got to deal with it. He's had much longer now than the new Naimri had and you can't keep talking about the past and the mess and the the um, pandemic and, and the COVID cases and the injuries. Well, many of those factors are dealt with by every every club and those with the most ambition would have sacked him by now in, in the case of Chelsea, which keeps being referenced um, publicly by a lot of people. Um, but I go back to that point that Arteta was aware of that need to win now when edu was laying out his vision don't Mm. worry you are our man and we're going to build in the next two to three years with multiple transfer windows to get rid of those players that we need to get rid of out of contract bring new ones in blend um youth with experience and try and get back arsenal arsenal back to where they belong in the long run and he was Rightly concerned that you need to win now. He he's been around English football and football his whole life, so he knows that that need to win now. So getting down to the the crux of your point, like of course he's under searing pressure now. But when I say that, I don't mean his he's he's about to be sacked. The bottom of the league. This is a disastrous start to the season. It could not have been worse, apart from the League Cup win. but, you know, I was listening to the Arsenal Beat Podcast and, and James Olley was underlining the mitigations, um, the reasons. And like, this isn't defense, it's just fact. The 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 COVID layoffs have been brutal, the injuries have been brutal. You you could ask, could anything be done internally to, to but that's a perpetual question if you're an Arsenal supporter or follower or even just outside observer. And, and they've backed him with players who he hasn't had at his disposal yet. So in my mind, there is no scenario in which he is sacked before having the chance to properly work with the players that he has brought in and he has been backed with. Even, even though the current position is unacceptable, I think it's also unacceptable to not let him work with the, the team And if we were to name the team now, it would be very different to the the team Mm. for the first three league games. And so that will be the judgment. Yeah, they need to scramble out of this mess. Norwich, West Brom, Tottenham, Brighton. They need to pick up some points quickly, but he needs to be given a run of fixtures. And that's why for quite some months now, and and we're going back towards the end of last season, there were some well-informed journalists who were saying he has until Christmas because it was a bad end to the season um in mm. terms of the european the yeah. sorry the European exit, obviously some momentum was built in the league um and that that gave green shoots of hope, but there were a lot of people around well connected people in football saying he's got until The turn of the year, 2021 into 2022, to show Arsenal are competitive again. There was a piece by Matt Law in the Telegraph saying he's got five games. Otherwise, he could be under really sharp scrutiny. Like, I don't hear people inside the club massively complaining about him. In fact, there's a real strong will for him to succeed. And these are not people that are trying to spin something to put out a positive message. This is not communications department. There is clear confusion or, or, you know, footballing dissatisfaction. You can see that in a lot of players on the pitch that they don't all seem to know exactly what's being asked of them or they can't deliver what's being asked of them or a bit of both. And so, you know, you hear bits and bobs on the training ground that give you little causes for concern. But then when you're not the person there, I think it's really hard to judge. And that's why many of our, much of our journalistic work happens after somebody's <laughs> left the
2: club people, or are, club. people are willing to talk.
1: People are willing to talk and explain it properly. Yeah. Until that moment, there, there is genuinely two sides to every story. You speak to a player that's not happy with how things are going under manager X, but that's because either it could be genuine and or it could be because they're not playing. And then you speak to another player who actually really likes it. These are not binary black and white things. And I don't sense um, from internally in response to your question that the carpet is being dragged from beneath Mikel Arteta's feet. I don't sense the tectonic plates are starting to shift. Um, but we all know that if this trajectory continues, you get to a point where um, something has to change. And so I think sort of part guess, part educated view, um, they're going to give him quite a lot longer and show total faith in him. I can't say that definitively because, I've, you know, that there were similar sort of sentiments coming out shortly before... Unai Emery was sacked, and and we wrote about it and we talked about it. But um, for the time being, despite him being in a worse position mm. than Emery, and that's when people normally come out of the woodwork and you start getting those rumblings. Yeah, you know, it's it's about to it's about to go bang. I, I'm not sensing that now, and and I think that is, for fear of saying it, understandable until he's got that um, that team at his disposal, and that will be
2: the acid test mm. well look I mean the the, the very simple solution for Mikel Arteta is to start winning some football games <laughs> I mean it. I mean, it, <laughs> everything is terrible when you're losing and I'm not saying everything is great when you're winning but it certainly does uh, take the heat off a bit so you know from an Arsenal fan's perspective I really hope uh, he can start doing that and he can put a run of games together but uh, look we, we better leave it there David thank you very much uh, for your insight into everything that's been going on it's great to talk to you again and hopefully we catch up again soon
1: it's a pleasure sorry to anyone for the waffle and fence (laughs) sitting but um these things aren't always easy uh however it is a, a pleasure to come on with you andrew always and i wish everybody listening all the best
2: thanks david as always great to talk to david hope you enjoyed the conversation i should just point out that there was an extra bit as well in which we talked about The performances of the team in the first three games, which for some reason did not get recorded, um, I can paraphrase basically by saying, not good, not good enough, and there's plenty of room and need for improvement. But look, great to talk to David. You can find him on Twitter. He is at David underscore Ornstein, at David underscore Ornstein. And of course, you can find his writing and reporting in The Athletic. I'm going to leave it there for now because it's been a long show. We do have a a football-free weekend unless you're invested in internationals. And I have to say, I'm not. I can't do it. I've got enough on my football plate with Arsenal without having to add to it with with Ireland. Robbed in midweek by referees and Cristiano Ronaldo. So I'm like, I just can't. I just can't. So whatever you're doing, have yourselves a great weekend. Thank you for being here as always. If you want to give us a rating or a review uh, via whatever podcast app you use, that would be very uh, much appreciated. So thank you for that in advance. We will have an cast Extra for you on Monday. James and I will be here to talk about whatever's going on, but it won't be in the morning as usual. We'll be recording at some stage in mid to late afternoon. So it's probably going to be a Monday evening podcast. So stay tuned for that in the meantime time take it easy and we will catch you on the next one cheers bye-bye Arsenal Football Club today announced the departure of supposed forward Willy Willie Williamson, just one year into a three year contract. The pint sized stonker has been an absolute lemon in red and white and departs with only 72 of the 83 gold bars he was promised. Arsenal chairman Sir Kensington Pryor said, Come on, les, let's have a party. Who's got a snow? Honk!